You're listening to the micro version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Imagine there's no anal. You barely have to try. Just don't think about dicks sliding into gay guy. Okay, I'm sorry. I'll stop. That song was inspired by a tweet. I just can't quit you, Elon. Someone named Morgan Ariel at It's Morgan Ariel on Twitter. Describes herself in her bio as a Christian activist, a lioness for Jesus Christ, a truth seeker. Tweeted out, imagine thinking butt sex is normal. Morgan has a fashion line. Via her fashion line, you can buy sweatshirts that say there is only one God and his name is, wait for it, Jesus Christ. You can also buy sweatshirts that say, I will not eat bugs because apparently part of the New World Order's master plan, part of what George Soros wants for all of us is to eat bugs. I suppose we can start with the worms that ate Morgan's brain. I will give her though, scroll through her Twitter. We'll give her fast fashion is evil. However, fashion, not much better. Now, at first I thought Morgan might be a bot, definitely a troll, but as I scrolled through her Twitter feed, I stumbled over video featuring interviews with her on some conservative news network I'd never heard of, and she is apparently for real, and she really believes that the conservative movement Today's GOP, the Trumpified, magified GOP, is being run by homosexuals. Why are people so eager, especially the ones that call themselves so-called conservatives, to jump on this homosexual bandwagon of depravity? A lot of people are lacking the spiritual foundation that's necessary to understand what's taking place right now. And if the conservative movement and the GOP wants to be blessed by God and wants to make any progress in our nation, then we need to turn from our wickedness. We need to rebuke this. We need to denounce it. And we need to not allow it into the movement instead of accepting it. Because as soon as they legalized gay marriage, the gates of hell busted wide open. Yeah. That is the problem with today's conservative movement. Homosexuals are running it. Ugh. All the homo cons out there, your George Santoses, your Milo Yiannopoulos, your Richard Grinnells, your Peter Thiels, you guys can hump Trump's leg until your crotches are Barbie smooth and they're still not going to make an exception for you. They hate you too, along with the rest of us. They always have and they always will. From Reagan doing nothing about AIDS to family values forever, gay rights never chance at the 92 Republican National Convention to Bob Dole mailing the check back to the log cabin Republicans in 1996 to George W. Bush pushing anti-gay marriage amendments to Romney doing what Romney did to McCain choosing anti-gay bigot Sarah Palin as his running mate to Trump letting the Family Research Council write the Republican platform in 2016. From GOP opposition to AIDS funding, to GOP opposition to LGBT people serving openly in the military, to GOP opposition to gay marriage, to today, right now, statewide elected officials in Texas, GOP elected officials, of course, because that's what a statewide elected official in Texas is, calling for the enforcement of anti-sodomy laws that the Supreme Court ruled were unconstitutional. It's the one constant 
with the GOP. Everything else the GOP once claimed to stand for, free trade, law and order, strong national defense, NATO, small government, small enough to cram it into your vagina, all gone, all jettisoned. Hating gay people, that never went away. It's the one through line, the one thing the GOP, the conservative movement has been consistent about all along. Even choice, not consistent. I mean, Republicans used to support abortion. George H.W. Bush was a supporter of Planned Parenthood. You could say he was for choice before he was against it. And the anti-gay hate, as we've seen it being cranked up over the last couple of years, inevitably it always comes back to butt stuff. That's their sweet spot, the place they're most comfortable obsessing about butt stuff. It speaks to, I think, a certain discomfort with their own bodies because, spoiler alert, straight people have butts too. Lesbians aren't given a toaster when they come out and gay men don't get sent a box with a prostate gland in it along with some very special rectal nerve endings that are just for us. Yes, yes, a higher percentage of gay people engage in anal intercourse and anal sex than straight people, but in real numbers, because there are so many more straight people out there and butt stuff isn't unheard of among straight people, in real numbers, most of the butt stuff going down on any given Saturday night is straight butt stuff. Like I said, I fell down the rabbit hole reading Morgan's Twitter feed where somebody, one of her followers, one of her followers who has more followers than she does, some dude named Julius tweeted, poo create does not equal procreate. Okay, sure. I don't think anyone was really confused on that point. No one having butt sex thinks that's how poos are created. That's where poos come from, just like no one having oral sex thinks that's how a baby gets into mommy's tummy. But this idea that sex is about procreation, or that because straight sex can result in procreation, that straight sex is okay and all other forms of sex are not okay, it really gets wrong. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of what sex is for most of the time. And I think most straight people, I think all straight people actually know this. Only honest straight people, which is most straight people, will admit it because it's how sex works in their lives too. And in straight people's lives, sex is not about procreation most of the time. It's about pleasure, intimacy, adventure, play, pair bonding, sometimes triad bonding, sometimes quad bonding. That's what most of the sex that most people have most of the time is about. Intimacy, adventure, play, pair bonding. Straight people spend most of their sexually active years, their years of peak fertility, desperately trying to avoid procreation. Straight people have a lot more sex than they do babies because sex plays a role in all of our lives, gay and straight, as social animals that transcends procreation and reproduction. Also, if you're tweeting about butt sex, you're interested. Morgan, come on. And normal schnormal. When it comes to human sexuality, the one thing we know for sure is that variance is the norm. And if it's poo creation you want to avoid, well, Julius, then you're going to want to borrow a page from the power bottoms out there. It's dinner you're going to want to skip, not anal. All right, coming up on this week's show on the Micro Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and a little bit on the micro and all on the magnum, author Matt Baum is here to talk about his terrific new book, Hi Honey, I'm Homo, Sitcoms, Specials, and the Queering of American Culture. All that coming up on today's show. 
This episode is brought to you by the Meridian Trimmer, the very best tool for trimming your body hair. Go to meridiangrooming.com and use the code SAVAGE for an exclusive 15% off. This episode is brought to you by Field, the dating app where the open-minded can meet the like-minded. My listeners get a free month when you download the app for the first time. Go to feeld.co slash savage. I'm excited because my husband and I, who've been together for 30 years, have been fantasizing about me getting fucked by someone else for at least 10 years. And it just finally happened. We're loving in this closeness and new energy it's brought into our relationship. But I'm curious to know your advice because now that it's been a couple of days, my husband's reconsidering how he feels about our arrangement and is no longer liking the idea of him being monogamous and me maybe seeing this guy, you know, three to four times a year. Do you think there's any other choices available to me other than try to push for what we originally agreed or release all limitations for him and just work on my jealousy issues and let him do whatever he wants. Also, he's a tell me fucking everything type of person. And I'm more of a don't ask, don't tell. So I'm a little worried about how to stay positive and keep him close as we kind of redefine things. So your husband being monogamous to you while you're free to have sex with other people or with this one other man, Whose idea was that? You say you've been fantasizing about this and and you finally acted on it after fantasizing about it for 10 years. If this was your husband's idea, if being a cuckold was your husband's idea, this is what women worry about when guys say, I want you to sleep with other men and I don't have to sleep with other women. It's not about me wanting to sleep with other women. It's about me wanting you to sleep with other men. It's about your pleasure. This is a worry that a lot of women have when out of the blue, seemingly, husbands or boyfriends that they assumed or they were told, you know, assumed wanted monogamy or were told by those men that they wanted and expected monogamy, suddenly propose, at least for the woman, the opposite. There's often this concern on the woman's part that it's just an opening gambit to the husband or boyfriend wanting permission to sleep with other women. Curious, whose idea you sleeping with other men was whose idea was that whose fantasy originally was that okay so whosever fantasy it was at first this is where you are now you've fucked another guy and your husband who thought that that would be hot and that would be enough after a couple of days and the excitement has worn off maybe he's experiencing some cuck angst about this suddenly wants for himself the same freedom that you guys negotiated for you over a period of a decade. And so what do you do? Well, if you don't want him to sleep with other people because you have, as I believe you said, jealousy issues, you could wrap your head around sleeping with other men or another man yourself, but you weren't comfortable with the idea of him sleeping with other women. And you got to this place where you negotiated non-monogamy for you and monogamy for him, which is a thing that some couples do, cuckold couples, hot wife couples, stag and vixen couples. And he wants to renegotiate the terms of that. Well, seems to me the logical thing then is to reset, to, to revert to your monogamous commitment while you figure this out. 
You say you've been together for 30 years. Don't take forever to figure this out or you don't have forever. None of us have forever. None of us, however long we've been together, however old we are, none of us have forever. But there's only so long you're going to be able to delay a decision here. I guess it depends on what you want. Because if your marriage is going to survive you sleeping with other men, you need to do that with your husband's consent. And if your husband's consent to you sleeping with this other guy is conditioned upon him having the same freedom to sleep with other women and you're not comfortable extending that freedom to him, well, then you need to close the relationship back down. And it doesn't sound like you want to close the relationship back down. You still want to sleep with this other guy. All right. Well, if you want to sleep with this other guy, you're going to have to let your husband sleep with other women. You're going to have to overcome or conquer your jealousy. And this is going to have to be a more egalitarian open relationship and less of uh, an imbalanced cuckold open for you closed for him relationship going forward. If you want to keep fucking this other guy, which you may not want to keep doing if fucking this other guy means your husband gets to fuck other women. So you have a decision to make. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth. I'm a 38-year-old cis, heteroflexible woman living on the West Coast. Ended my marriage to my son's father about a year and a half ago. And I'm now a single mom living in a pretty small town in Northern California. So I've been relying almost exclusively on the apps for dating. Here's my issue. I've realized I'm somewhat of a height queen when it comes to the men I date not proud of this. I realize it's unfair to not give a man a chance just because of his height, but also I like what I like. So on the apps I've been using, disclosing height is totally optional. Often men don't disclose their height. And so it's happened multiple times already where I start chatting with someone. We establish a degree of connection. And then when we finally meet, I discover they are shorter than me. So in order to avoid this, I've started asking men I've connected with how tall they are. I try to weave it into conversation casually and say something like, hey, trying to get a good picture of you in my mind. I'm curious, how tall are you? I feel so awkward every time I ask this. I don't want these men to think I'm shallow. Then again, I really don't want to waste their or my time forming a connection only to discover once we meet in person that I'm not attracted to them because of their height. What's your advice, Dan? Should I get over myself and stop penalizing men for something beyond their control? Should I keep asking them when we connect on the dating apps about their height early in our conversation and just own the awkwardness of it? Recently went on a date with a man I connected with on an app. He's slightly shorter than me. I'm 5'8 for reference. Really like him. We have a lot in common. Our kinks and our desires align, but I keep going back and forth about whether I should end things now because I really want to date a taller man. You like what you like. If you'd rather be with a shitty guy who's 6'1 as opposed to a great guy who's 5'7, if you'd rather be with a guy who won't eat your pussy, who's 5'11", instead of a guy who will eat your pussy, who's 5'7 and a half. That's your free choice. That's your option. You can absolutely rule guys out based on something arbitrary like height. A lot of people do. Heightism, sexual heightism and otherwise, is a thing. And 
ultimately, you know, if a guy is great and five, seven, five, eight, five, nine, there's plenty of women out there. If women have to have men who are taller than them, who are five, two, five, three, five, four, there are also plenty of women out there who are taller than guys who are five, six, five, seven, five, eight, five, nine, who are happy to date guys who are shorter than them. And the great short guys will find women who don't give a fuck about height one way or the other, or they'll find women who are shorter than them who did give a fuck about height. And they'll be great boyfriends for those women. They're not going to be great boyfriends for you because you're not going to be a great boyfriend for them because you are not just attracted to guys who are tall. It's kind of a deal breaker for you. You are actively turned off on some fundamental way that it sounds like if you could choose to flip a switch and it wouldn't be so, you would flip that switch, but you're just turned off by guys who are shorter than you are. And I think if you can do it in a courteous way, run it to ground, find out somebody's height before you meet them so you don't waste their time and they can move on and find somebody that is shorter than they are if it matters to them or taller than they are and it doesn't matter to them and not waste their time on you. Yeah. Yeah, you like what you like. Some people are size queens. Some people are height queens. Some people have very strong preferences when it comes to things that other people, people in their erotic target (laughs) zone, have no control over. And, you know, in a way we kind of, if we've interrogated our desires, we've really thought about them, if we've made sure our desires are actually our desires, we have no real control over them either. What we have control over is how we treat people and how considerate and courteous we can be about expressing our preferences, which it is possible for a person to do without being an asshole. This episode is sponsored by Field. Field is the perfect dating app for my listeners. If you're open-minded, curious about your sexuality, ready to explore unquestioned aspects of your sexual identity or desires, Field can offer you way more than conventional dating apps. GGG, good giving and game, is the fastest growing desire term on field. So that says a lot about who's using it right now. And as the largest dating community of progressive people across the globe, field connects the curious with the open-minded. Field has built a community for awesome, ethical, and honest people and aims to create a world where everyone can explore their desires without judgment and design their relationships. The app is inclusive to all, no matter your gender or orientation. And when you join, you get to choose from more than 20 plus sexual and gender identity options. Field values sex positivity and encourages you, just like I encourage you, to share your desires and your interests directly on your profile so that people know what you're into. From cuddling and long kisses to BDSM and shibari, you can be open from the start, right from the beginning, and connect more easily with like-minded humans in a space created for safe and ethical sexual and relationship exploration. Since the pandemic, field members have expressed a radically increased desire to connect on an emotional and cultural level rather than just a purely sexual one. Through their app, you can find ways to share softness, tenderness, and kinkiness all at your own pace. 
For a limited time, listeners of the Lovecast will receive a free month of Fields Majestic membership when you download the app for the first time. Just use the link in the show notes to download Field for free or head to field.co slash savage. That's F-E-E-L-D dot C-O slash savage to get access for a free month of Majestic membership. F-E-E-L-D dot C-O slash savage. I don't know if this is a question. I don't know if this is a statement. I gotta say, I don't know what is going on with men and their smelly dicks and their cheesy dicks and their dirty underpants. Your dick smells like cheese. That's the first and last time you're getting laid. There's no second chance. And underwear, underwear is the size of a fucking dinner napkin. You can wash them every day. It's not a big deal. Just fucking wash your laundry and wash your dicks. That's it. Little boost that caller's message messages those concerns wash your fucking dicks i it boggles the mind that someone who knows that their dick is about to get sucked someone who knows well hopefully their dick is about to get sucked someone who hopes their dick is about to get sucked someone who knows they're about to have sex even if you couldn't get to a shower that day that you don't take a moment alone in the bathroom to give yourself a quick horse bath at the sink. You can literally lean over a sink and drop your dick in it and wash your hands and your dick at the same time and have your dick good to go. And wash your fucking butt too. That said, I've recently gotten to a little bit of trouble with my listeners and readers because when it comes to changing underpants every day, I'm not there. Maybe because I'm just a naturally clean person that after a day of wearing a single pair of underpants, they don't smell like camembert. They don't smell like shit because I didn't cheese all over my, cause my dick ain't cheesy and my ass ain't dirty. And I can wear my underpants for 36 hours instead of just 24 hours and be fine. But, you know, individual results may vary. Individual skids may appear in other people's underpants. If your partner wants you to change your underpants every day, you should. And if you're at all concerned that you may be a little cheesy, a little stinky, change your underpants every day, wash your fucking dick, wash your fucking butt, take a fucking shower. Ugh. Man smells. Most people aren't down. That's why Man Smells is a kink and has its own fetish nights now in places like New York City because people want to opt into that as a kink. That's not a default setting for 99% of humanity. Wash your decks. This episode is brought to you by the Meridian Trimmer, my new favorite tool for shaving down there. Meridian offers powerful trimmers that cut through even the coarsest hair, but their trimmers are gentle enough for your privates. You'll enjoy a comfortable shave below the belt with no nicks, cuts, or ingrowns. Meridian trimmers are for men, they're for women, they're for non-binary folks, and they're for any style, whether you prefer a completely bare, neatly trimmed scruff, or a well-rounded bush. This high-quality waterproof trimmer is fitted with a 6,000 RPM motor, safe ceramic blades, and an anti-nick shaving guard. And Meridian has so many happy customers over 1,000 five-star reviews online. With the Meridian Trimmer, you can get your body hair looking just how you like it and feel good and sexy with your fuzz. Get a Meridian Trimmer today for the ultimate trimming experience without the pain, discomfort, or awkwardness. Order now and take control of your grooming routine on your own terms. 
Listeners of the Savage Lovecast get an extra 15% off your order using the coupon code SAVAGE. Go to M-E-R-I-D-I-A-N grooming.com and use the code SAVAGE for an exclusive 15% off. You deserve a better and safer below-the-belt trimming experience, and with Meridian Trimmer, you can get one today. Hi, Dan. I'm a mid-20s guy with a question about coming fast. So I've been with my partner for about a decade, and for the last few years, the best way for us to have sex is as quickly as possible, which hasn't really been a problem. It's fun. We get to do it, and that's nice. And that's mostly due to our living circumstances, living situation. Our living situations are about to change, and the opportunity to maybe not have to have quickies all the time is probably going to come up with that as well. And my concern is that in the beginning of our relationship, I was only able to orgasm maybe 30% of the time. And I've since been able to train myself, trick my brain into orgasming most of the time. With that, it's now essentially as quickly as we possibly can. And my concern is going into this new situation where we're able to have sex more, I don't know, comfortably or more at our own pace that I may have rewired my brain to only coming as fast as absolutely possible. Because again, the last couple of years, that's what it's had to be. You're so aware of how this could play out as a problem and aware of why this could be a problem. You know, in this relationship of almost a decade, I think you said, you've always had rushed and hurried sex. And you wouldn't come unless you came quickly and maybe you've trained yourself with this person to come quickly. Well, if you trained yourself to come quickly, you can untrain yourself. That you can articulate the risk here. And you don't even know. Like once you have more time on your hands, once you have a private space, this thing that you worry may be a problem may not be a problem. If it is a problem, you've already done what I would tell you to do, which is just to name it, to identify how you fell into this pattern and then to relax about it and retrain your dick. You trained your dick to get to this point where you're rushing, where you're pushing yourself toward an orgasm as quickly as possible. You can retrain your dick to pull back. I get to use, thank you, caller, one of my favorite expressions in the English language, the point of orgasmic inevitability. In the past, you've hurried yourself as quickly as you could to that point of orgasmic inevitability. If you know where that point is, if you can identify it, if you know that feeling when you're approaching the falls, and then that feeling when you're going to go over the falls, no matter what happens, you can gamify that. You can over time get better and better and better at approaching the falls without getting to that point where you're going to go over the falls, whatever else happens. And then you can extend the sex. You can also go ahead, and if you're going to have a rushed orgasm, have that rushed orgasm and then go again. Shift to focusing on your partner's pleasure after you have maybe your too quick orgasm. But the more in your head you get about it, the more worried you get about this thing that is clearly a thing that you can control. Tell yourself, I can control and manipulate this. I already have. I already trained my dick once. I can retrain my dick. If you get in your head, it's going to be a problem. You're already in your head, but like you can get in your head with a better answer than, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, this is going to be a problem. Get in your head with, even if this is a problem, it's a problem I can solve. Just as I did it once, I solved the problem of not having a lot of time and having to hurry to come. I can solve the problem. Yes, you can solve the problem of coming too quickly when you have all the time in the world.
Hi, Dan. I have a question about kink. I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, and I get really turned on when I read about other people being abused by their parents or their other authority figures. And I know that this is really disgusting because of what happened to me and what happens to people, and it's gross. And so I've never really told anybody about this, but it does turn me on incredibly when I think about being abused by imagining myself as a child being abused by an adult. Can you speak to this issue? Well, obviously, you were abused as a child, and in a sense, you were left with this, burdened with this. You shouldn't re-victimize yourself by guilting yourself over it, by feeling terrible about it. You're not doing anything to anyone. You're not behaving inappropriately with anyone. You're having fantasies about inappropriate shit that perhaps you having been victimized in this way, some part of your erotic imagination seized on it. And what can you do? What can you do? You can feel bad about it, not going to change anything. You can rationalize to a certain extent and tell yourself that there are people out there who weren't abused in childhood who have these fantasies who are burdened with these fantasies just as you're burdened with them. And it may not be, you know, your erotic imagination seizing on these things and not something you did to yourself, just chance and the random assigning of kinks. Kinks, we don't choose our kinks. Our kinks choose us. We can't help what arouses us and, and excites us. The only thing that we can control is how we act on it and what we put out there into the world. You're not acting on this. These are the kinds of desires that no one can ever act on ethically, morally, responsibly, in a consensual manner with another adult, obviously. And you never would and you never have. And there's no moral agency in a sad circumstance that you're aroused by this shit. You read these stories. Okay, that's squicky. The squickiness, you can say, oh my God, that's so squicky, that's so gross, that's so, uh. Of course, the reason that it may turn you on, the reason these things do turn some people on who are moral, ethical people who would never act in them is not despite the squickiness and the transgression, but because of it. So sitting around saying, oh, this is squicky and awful and taboo and transgressive and only a bad person would be aroused by that, you constantly stating and restating that to yourself doesn't burn it off. It doesn't rip it out. It actually, in some small way, may reinforce it. What are you fantasizing about? What turns you on you can't control? How you behave, what you do, what you put out there into the world, how you treat your sex partners who are all consenting adults, that's what matters. And that's where you get the measure of someone's goodness, badness, their morality. And you can be a deeply moral person who is burdened with fantasies that, if realized, could only be realized in a, in a deeply immoral manner. 
and you have no intention of ever doing that, you, at some point you have to let yourself off the hook. Yes, we should think about the things that turn us on, think about the ethical and moral implications of it, of our turn-ons, interrogate them, be thoughtful about it, but we can't pretend that just interrogating them or being thoughtful about it or talking about it in therapy is going to cure us. We aren't ultimately in control of our thoughts, our fantasies, our kinks. We're in control of our actions. We are going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with pop culture writer and YouTuber Matt Baum about his new book, Hi Honey, I'm Homo, Sitcoms, Specials, and the Queering of American Culture. Hey, Matt, welcome back to the Savage Lovecast. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. I have to tell you that this book is a triumph. It is a history of the gay rights movement, the LGBT movement, refracted through the prism of, of sitcoms, familiar ones like Friends, uh, forgotten ones, particularly by younger queers like Bewitched. And it's just, it's just a work of such genius. You describe yourself as a gay pop culture obsessive. You're not the only one. What is it about being gay and pop culture that there can be not just an appreciation for pop culture, everybody consumes pop culture to, to a lesser or, or greater extent, but the obsessive encyclopedic knowledge about pop culture, the the way gay people, gay men in particular, will be as informed about some aspect of pop culture as some straight guys will be about baseball stats. What is it about pop culture that drew you in? What is it about pop culture that draws in so many other gay men? Well, so I think, you know, everybody loves some aspect of pop culture. I mean, even, even sports are pop culture to an extent. That's true. Um, <laughs> so um, I think part of it, part of the reason why there's a particular appeal for queer people, I think, is that we are especially looking to see ourselves. And sometimes, especially if we're growing up somewhere isolated or we're in a culture where we don't feel um, empowered to live our true authentic self with the people around us, it's either an escape or it's a way for us to find stories that reflect our experiences, sometimes before we even realize we're looking for those stories or before we have the words to say, here's what I am, or here's the life I want, you know, we might catch a glimpse of Uncle Arthur on Bewitch, or we might see the gay football player on Alice, or we might see the gay houseboy on the Golden Girls and start feeling like, oh, this is telling something, this is showing me something about myself. And I, I see myself and, I, you know, in, in a way that maybe I don't see around me because we are rare and unique and special people. There's not a lot of us compared to the others. So, you know, sometimes there's just this, this glowing feeling of there I am. Let's talk about sitcoms. It really is the focus of the book. It's the structure of the book. You move from sitcom to sitcom. Sitcoms started out, you know, family comedies, Father Knows Best, Leave It to Beaver. You write that there was a point in the early 60s where sitcoms got really, really weird and really kind of queer-coded in a way that flew over the heads, not just of the straight people watching, but sometimes I think even of the creators making these mm. shows. Talk about Bewitched. There were no gay or lesbian or queer characters in Bewitched, but it may have been, you write, the gayest show that was ever on television. Yeah, it's a fascinating show. And, you know, you could just enjoy it for the jokes and the silliness and the wackiness. The premise of the show, if folks aren't familiar, youngsters, is that a witch played by Elizabeth Montgomery 
marries a mortal and her secret status as a witch um, is a point of contention in the marriage, but they're, they've determined that they're going to live a normal, quote unquote, life in the suburbs. And there's always wacky hijinks where her magic gets them into trouble. And it's always funny and silly. But she's also a super empowered woman for the times, for the mid-60s when the show started. And there are also a lot of queer people working behind the scenes on the show. There's uh, the, the secondary, because they changed husbands midway through. Uh, but Dick Sargent was gay and closeted at the time. Paul Lind was a recurring guest on the show. There are rumors and there are things that we think we can know about some of the other cast members. Agnes Moorhead. Uh, yeah. Boy, oh boy. I would love to solve the, the riddle of Agnes Moorhead because... I mean, just her performance, her character of Endora, and other roles that she's played. She, she's in Citizen Kane. People forget that she plays um, Charles Foster Kane's mother in Citizen Kane. But Agnes Moorhead, just her roles are very queer, and she's very draggy and campy. But also, there are been words said about her life that are difficult to confirm, but were she to be a member of the community, we would welcome her with open arms. Especially with that last name. Yes, I know. It's so perfect. <laughs> but but let, let's get back to the, the premise of the show. Yeah. So basically, you have this couple hiding out in suburbia, pretending to be heteronormative, pretending that the wife is submissive to the husband, isn't actually more powerful than the husband. And of course, Samantha is more powerful than Darren. She is a witch. She can do magic. And the whole show is about them being a closeted couple. It's just what they're closeted about is different. And you unpack a particular episode called The Witches Are Out. Can you tell us about that episode? It's very early in the series run, before they went to color. It's the first season. And it's Halloween. And Samantha and some of her witch friends are gathered together in a coven to complain about how Halloween is a time when they see a lot of stereotypes about their community. They see these ugly, haggard caricatures and they see children with blacked out teeth and warts running and talking about how evil they are and they're the loveliest ladies and they're just misunderstood and one of them says i don't see why we don't just come out and tell people that we're witches and then they'd see how lovely we are and then uh another one of the witches says oh well you better get ready for 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 some burnings uh at the stake and it's such an allegory for the conversation that were happening in what would have been called at the time homophile circles, where there's this debate, should we come out and should we show the world that we are gay or should we protect ourselves and stay in the closet? Samantha's husband, Darren, works in advertising and is actually leading a campaign which is featuring images, these stereotypical images of evil, haggard, crone witches. And there had been at this time, you write about this, some very early protests pre-Stonewall uh, for gay rights um, where there were pickets and people, it was, you know, the Mattachine Society and an earlier organization where they encouraged people to come dressed very conservatively to disprove stereotypes about gays and lesbians being radical or gay men being effeminate. Like the gays had to come in suits and ties and the women had to come in skirts to these early pickets. And what you see in this show in Bewitched is a picket. It's mm -hmm. almost as if it's it's such a it's such a I don't want a naked allegory. It's such a transparent allegory for the earliest gay rights protest. And this was this show was made before Stonewall. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it, tell us about the protest that happens in the show where the witches picket. Yeah, the timing of this episode is astonishing. So. In the episode, the witches are tired of being depicted in these very negative ways and the misunderstandings about them. Samantha even has a conversation with Darren where she says things like, don't you understand? These stereotypes hurt. 
it's a really heartfelt moment. And so what they decide to do is they have signs with messages like, we demand a new image, witches are people too. And because they are magical beings, they invade the dreams of an executive and they torment him in his dreams by standing there with these picket signs and demanding that he adjust the depictions, uh, these stereotypical depictions of witches. And this aired just a few weeks after what is regarded, what is probably the first public protest by queer people. It was outside an army recruiting station in Manhattan. um, And it looks so similar. People dressed nicely and with signs that say, we demand sexual privacy. And um, because they're protesting the army and and discharge rules, messages about how homosexuals have fought for the U.S. too. And it's so similar. And the makers of Bewitched, I mean, I don't think that they were like, well, we got it. We got to jump on this bandwagon and do, a, do a, you know, imitate this gay protest. But the, 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 the allegory is so clear. Matt Baum, pop culture writer and YouTuber. His new book, Hi Honey, I'm Homo, sitcom specials in the queering of American culture is out now. If you have ever sat down, you know, you're one of those queer people who've been told by other queer people that you should bone up on some queer history and you've gotten your hands on some you know, books of queer history, but they were too dry and they didn't pull you in and you just set them aside. This is the book for you. It is a history of the LGBT civil rights movement in the United States, really on the planet, told through in this relatable way through these familiar pop culture products, these sitcoms. And you'll learn so much. And like me, you'll probably have the book in one hand and the computer open to YouTube in the other and be bopping back and forth, reading about these shows, reading about particular scenes, and then pulling them up on YouTube and watching them uh, and learning so much in the process about LGBT civil rights and the struggle for it. Matt, like I said, I mean this. I have people on whose books I like, and I always tell people I like their books because it's always true because I don't want to have people on whose books I don't like. I don't always tell people that their books were a triumph or are a triumph. This book is a triumph. And Everyone should read it. Wow. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And also, by the way, I'm going to be doing a book tour around the country where I'm doing presentations and I'm showing clips from the book and stuff. So uh, I might be coming to a town near you. And I've got all the details at GaySitcoms.com. Matt Baum, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. A real pleasure. For more of my conversation with Matt Baum about his really terrific new book, subscribe right now to the Savage Lovecast. Get the Magnum edition. Become a Magnum sub at savage.love. Hey Dan, Bye Guy here from the Great Lakes region. Me and my partner have been together for five years now, and I'm currently making plans to propose to her. I've talked to her about what type of ring she would like and where she would like to be proposed to, so I'm pretty confident everything I'm setting up is going to make her happy. The problem comes in with my father. We've had a really close relationship my entire life, partially because it's just been the two of us for so long. My mother died from drug complications when I was only five years old, so it's mostly just been me and him for the longest time. When I told him I was planning to propose, he let me know that he'd been keeping the diamond from my mother's wedding ring all these years waiting for this occasion. He gave me the diamond with the request of, if I want to, I can have it worked into either the engagement wing or the wedding wing as kind of a a way to memorialize her and have her be part of the ceremony. And now I'm kind of left in an awkward situation here. If it was my mother's entire ring, I think it'd be easy for me to flat out tell my dad no, that I don't want something like that incorporated there. The, the, the thing is, my mother died when I was really young. I don't have any memories of her, positive or negative. I just kind of have this 
this sad emptiness of knowing that she's not there and growing up with so many friends and family that did have these loving maternal figures in your life. I don't know if, if I had had a bad relationship with my mom, I, I guess I could feel like I was could easily say no to this, but it seems like it's something that's really important to my dad. And he's been keeping this diamond available for me or ready for me for two decades. Do you think it's reasonable to say no? Do you think there's some way that I can incorporate it without it making things feel awkward to me? I think my partner would be fine with it, but I'm just kind of left perplexed. It doesn't seem to me like this is a thing you have to say no to. What your dad wants is for the woman that you marry to have this diamond because this diamond and your dad's relationship with your late mother. And I'm so sorry for your loss and drugs and alcohol, man, they steal people from us and it can be horrible. The diamond means something to your dad about what your mom meant to your dad. And your dad has been holding onto this diamond so that he could give it to you to give to the woman that you feel as strongly about as he felt about your mom. So maybe what you go to your dad and say is, I want to cut out the middleman here. This is a gift that you want to give the woman I marry. And I think that you should give it to her. I want to get my own diamond for her in the ring or the wedding ring. Let's you know, you know who your fian- your fiance to be, your future fiance is. What kind of jewelry does she like to wear? If this diamond was set, you know, in a necklace, on a chain, if it was set in some other way, another significant piece of jewelry that could be not about your proposal to her, but about your father welcoming her into the family and into his life. I could see you redirecting your father's very generous impulse in such a way that centers him, centers your mom, and is about his relationship as father-in-law with daughter-in-law and him honoring who you are or who she is to you by gifting her this diamond he once gave to the woman that he felt the same way that you feel about her about to. You know what I mean? So I I hope if you and your father are close, you can have this kind of nuanced, complicated, maybe slightly emotionally fraught conversation. He's fantasized all his life about this being the diamond on the engagement ring you give to the woman that you marry. I don't think you need to shut that fantasy down. I think you just need to like channel it. A diamond that would look great on an engagement ring is a diamond that would look great on the end of a, a bob and a gold chain. And... If you were marrying somebody and you got two pieces of diamond jewelry instead of one, how is that not a Yahtzee? All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, a couple of comments on last week's show posted at savage.love. Says Orchid Thief, I hate to tell you, Dan, but the child in John Mulaney's new comedy show is a bit. He did the same thing at the live version I saw back when he called this show from scratch. Well, if it was a bit, it was a good bit. And that was still a child there in the audience. So my point stands says by Dan fan 
For the woman whose new boyfriend wants her to dominate him, domination is people-pleasing. It's all about what the sub wants and making them happy. The thrill for me as a dom is how much my sub is getting off on the things I'm doing to them. And finally, JD writes via email, Dan, you referred to fetish goddess Maduri in the most recent episode of the Savage Lovecast and how she's written a lot about women finding their inner dom. I've tried all manner of spelling of her name in Google and yet can't seem to find her. I was, of course, referring to fetish goddess Maduri. You can find fetish goddess Maduri at Planet Maduri, which is spelled M-I-D-O-R-I. Com. Thanks to everyone who left comments at savage.love on the podcast and the column. And thanks to everyone who posted to your social media accounts about the show this week. We really appreciate how our listeners help spread the word about the Savage Lovecast. And now, listener response calls. This is a response to episode 866 and the woman who was looking for tips to stay married because she had a conditional green card and didn't want to get a divorce. She should talk to an immigration lawyer not the one who did her original case, if possible, but someone else who doesn't also represent her spouse. And it is absolutely possible to get a divorce while you have a conditional green card and still get your permanent green card at the end of your conditional period if she got married for reasons besides immigration purposes. So she shouldn't take legal advice from the Savage Love cast, but she should absolutely talk to a lawyer if she doesn't think she wants to be married anymore. Hey, Dan, this is the response to the caller in episode 866 on the question about grooming body hair. I trim my bush once in a one to two month period with light scissor snips and uh, once in six months I do a complete buzz down to check of any skin irritation, fungus or anything like that, which you can't see when the bush is too thick. Uh, I don't trim my balls though, just maybe the very long hairs, too scared of injury to go further. I must say, taking into account the smell of a well-kept, healthy, clean bush, the mojo in Austin Powers' terms as a tool I use to dominate. My subs as nostrils are regularly fucked by my bush smell, especially after a long day sitting at work. I wash my bush daily with a sand-free shower gel. I'm so team body hair. Hashtag embrace the bush. Hi, Dan. This is a response to the caller in episode 866 who had an issue with using the word daddy. Um, do not feel shame. You're not morally corrupt. You're not a bad person. Dan was totally right. You are using sexually charged terminology in your own way. People use parental and family terms of endearment when talking to their partners in a sexy and playful way. Pappy, mammy, whatever. And I am one of those straight cis women that Dan referenced since having kids two years ago and again two weeks ago. My tastes towards the word daddy and porn featuring that dynamic have totally changed. Perhaps because I now associate that word really solidly with my husband, but it turns me on. And if it does the same for you and your partner enjoys it too, then shake it off. Shake off the shame and enjoy. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? Go to savage.love slash askdan to record your question or your comment. Or you can use the voice memo app on your phone and email your question or comment to q at savage.love. And you can also call us and leave a message at 206-302-2064. Follow me on Instagram at Dan Savage and still on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage and now on Blue Sky at Dan Savage. Follow Matt Baum at Matt Baum on Twitter. And you can check out more of his work at GaySitcoms.com. 
The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for telling me.